Welcome to the LTC University Podcast, empowering and educating across the great state of South Carolina. Here we go. Welcome to the LTC University Podcast. My name is Jamie Preston, and today we have a very special show for you. We have two guests. We have Melissa Chisholm. She's an advanced certified hospice and palliative care practitioner. And we also have Trent Prater. Trent is the Vice President of Hospice and Palliative Care Services for South Carolina House Calls. He's a registered nurse. Guys, welcome to the show. Good morning, Jamie. Thanks for having us. Good morning. Yeah, yeah. Welcome. Um, So today we're going to be talking about end-of-life decisions, end-of-life care Um, identifying kind of when a person's right for palliative care or hospice care. Um, But I have a question for you first, Melissa, and correct me if I'm wrong, because I am quite often, but correct me if I'm wrong on this. A provider should most of the time, obviously there's, there's situations and there's scenarios, but most of the time a provider shouldn't be surprised when one of their patients passes away. That is correct, Jamie. Most of the time we have a very good idea as to, to when our patients are going to leave us when they're going to die. And, um, you know, I'm sure most of you guys have heard the surprise question. And um, this is a question that we often teach new providers to ask themselves. And the question is, would I be surprised if this person dies in the next six months? Right. And if there is no, I wouldn't be surprised, then the provider needs to make a point to have a, you know, a serious conversation with that patient and the family to talk about their prognosis and to talk about what, what to expect. Yeah. Now, Trent, you've been a hospice nurse, you know, in the past. Um, so you've, you've, you know, you've been here, you've dealt with this. Have you ever been surprised when a patient has passed? Yeah, generally not, Jamie. I think as, as Melissa said quite well, you you know we have when you work with patients in this in this um, genre of healthcare for very long, you really are become acutely aware of these declines, and sometimes patients decline quickly, uh, but sometimes it's really more insidious. But I think with with time, you get to learn the nuance of that, and and some even sometimes the subtlety of decline. So I think the more the more of these conversations we have, and the more patients at end of life we treat we become more skilled and adept, if you will, at uh, seeing those indicators of, of decline. Yeah. Well, let, well, let's, let's kind of hop into some of those indicators and let's start with palliative care. Um, Melissa, kind of tell me what you're looking for when you're, when you're seeing a patient, uh, whether that's through telehealth, whether that's through a home visit, um, what are you looking for? Some of the signs that kind of tip you off, man, this, this person probably is a good candidate for palliative care. That's a great question, Jamie. For me, you know, anyone that's probably over the age of 80 years old is, is kind of a trigger for me. And then when I start looking at their, their medical history, if they have advanced COPD or heart disease, heart failure, particularly if they have, um, stage three, stage four cancer, anyone that has dementia, those are great patients to refer to palliative care. Yeah. Right. And so especially you're, uh, 
comfortable having these serious conversations with with your patient. You know, you can reach out to palliative who is skilled and and can speak to these patients openly and honestly. I've had several palliative referrals where I ask the patient, what has your um, provider told you about your heart failure? Have they told you anything about a prognosis or, or maybe what's ahead in the next three to five years? And, you know, unfortunately, most of the time, the answer is nothing. Right. Yeah. Jamie, to piggyback on uh, what Melissa just said, as she talked about, you know, that I love that she asks her patients that question. What has your provider in the past shared with you? I think, you know, a, a couple of other or at least one other instance where I know in my education and coaching with providers, we, we talk a lot about is a great time or an opportunity to refer to palliative care is actually at the time of diagnosis of a, a life limiting or serious illness. Um, so let's say a patient is being seen uh, even by SC House Calls in primary care, and they are they have a hospitalization, uh, perhaps a week or two long, and and when they come home from that, they've been diagnosed with a COPD or a CHF. That's a really great time. Uh, it may it may not be that if you ask the surprise question, uh, then it may not be six months, um, but it may be a perfect time when a provider thinks that the person is possibly two years or a year and a half out. Uh, from from that hosp being eligible for hospice, that's a great time to onboard um, palliative care, and they can sort of continue to aggressively treat symptoms, but they can also be setting the stage, if you will, for having those serious illness conversations in the hospice conversation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and and how many how many times, Trent? You know, when you were a hospice nurse. Did you see patients that maybe you were evaluating, but you saw where doctors or providers struggled to put this person on hospice because they didn't want to give up? Well, I've seen that. I, honestly, I've seen that often. And I'm, I'm sure, I'm certain that Melissa has as well. Um, you know, and it's the different models. Yeah, our company, um, by and large, um, employs um, nurse practitioners. We have physicians as, as well. But our team is really mostly nurse practitioners, and they're trained a little bit on a different model. Um, so the medical model, really, we see that often is uh, doctors are hesitant to have that conversation. And even in uh, our company with nurse practitioners who have less experience with that, it's it's tough to have that conversation. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, and show that the longer we see patients, the more likely we are going to overly – prognosticate you know for that patient or right. be as accurate the longer we see someone so sometimes it's nice to have a fresh set of eyes absolutely it's a great point yeah and, and melissa for you you know i know you've um your training as a nurse practitioner when you're you're going through school um now you have obviously you have an advanced you know certification for hospice and palliative care but you know people that don't you know, how hard is it for that practitioner to, to feel like maybe they're giving up if they, you know, refer somebody to palliative care or hospice care? I think most providers do have that that feeling that they don't want to they don't want to fail their patient. You know, oftentimes we want to keep offering treatments because we don't want to let them down. And I think it's important for providers, especially new providers, to know your your goal is to um improve that patient's quality of life, you know, maximize their function and not necessarily keep offering treatments that has, is going to have no impact on their overall quality of life. Yeah, absolutely. 
Um, and Jamie, that's really where the serious illness conversation uh, part of this uh, is so meaningful and comes into play because the focus of um, the serious illness conversation really is more about their goals uh, and partnering with them and their goals than it is about uh, diagnostics and treatments. And so really just to add to what Melissa said, that that is a key component um, in, for providers. I think if we, we equip them with this knowledge of and, and the skill and comfort and competence, if you will, of having these serious illness conversations, it's just a great opportunity to partner with our patients in clarifying their goals and what's really important to them as they go through these um, making these difficult decisions. Yeah, absolutely. Um, let's jump into that serious illness conversation. Let's talk about that kind of Man, where does where does it even begin? So the serious illness conversation guide it was a joint venture between Brigham and Women's Hospital and the Harvard TH Chan School of Public Health to really create a scripted tool for providers to use to help navigate these waters. And I love that it's a simple, you know, checklist that providers can even have right in front of them as they talk to their patient to to get through these these hard conversations. Yeah. What, what do you think the biggest fear is, Melissa, for providers getting into these conversations? I think I think it's a lot of things. You know, I think that um, they are difficult. You know, they, they don't want to let their patient down. They don't want to necessarily talk about prognosis being short and, and they don't want to be wrong. Right. So we, we never suggest, you know, being, um, time sensitive on a prognosis. We always say, give, um, give a, give a range of time, you know, use the phrase hours to day, days to weeks, weeks to months, you know, never tell anyone you only have three months to live because we don't truly know that. And if right. someone lives that you're going to lose trust with that patient yeah absolutely and that conversation is all about trust then the relationship mm -hmm. with the patient and and you know you had asked about why people may find this conversation difficult and my in my experience and even working with providers on this is i feel like it's um it's not having having done it in the past. And so, you know, everything becomes more comfortable with repetition, but it's really just th thinking, what do I say and how do I say it? How do I convey this message to the patient and how do I ask them to share their um, fears or their goals with me in, in a way that's meaningful and, and not threatening? And one of the great things about um, the Serious Illness Conversation Guide is it's really, it's a structured approach. So for, for the a provider who may be uneasy about this, the, the guide is, is a fantastic tool because it works on two planes. One is, is the flow of the conversation. So, for example, it's you, you, the provider will set up the conversation and then assess understanding. They'll share the prognosis, and that's really where what Melissa just talked about with the days uh, to months or days to weeks, weeks to months, and there's verbiage that they use. There's this wish, worry, or um, hope versus worry kind of statements, and then they explore topics. So there's a focus to it, but also there's patient-tested language so that there's specific ways that they can ask questions to patients that's, that's been tested and, and proven, if you will, um, to elicit the right responses and to put patients at ease and to help that conversation flow. So I love 
the conversation, but I love the guide because it really helps provide structure for for providers who may be uncomfortable having that conversation. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, kind of, you know, when you have, you know, is this conversation specifically just for the patient or do you really recommend having it with, you know, close family as well? I personally prefer to have the patient and the family there together. I feel like oftentimes I'll have these serious conversations with the patient. And at the end of that conversation, they breathe this sigh of relief. And then the next thing they ask me is, can we have this exact same conversation with my family? They need to hear it. Right. Absolutely. Um, so Trent, you know, I know you just went through, um, and we're part of a training that, that for the Carolina center, um, give us kind of some of the stuff that you, uh, took away from last week. Absolutely. Well, so I went through the, uh, the serious illness conversation facilitator training. Um, and, and really it's in my role here, uh, it's, it was a wonderful two day training and it's just to help me and others from, from our company and our partner, Agape Care SC and being able to teach better, being better equipped to teach, uh, or facilitate this training with our providers. So, you know, I was really just so impressed with the, um, with the structure um, of it and, and, for, of course, you know, I am coaching nurse practitioners, but one of the things we talked quite a bit about was really the differences between physicians and NPs and the medical model and the nursing model. And, um, and so one of the things that was striking to me is that, and it's been my experience with physicians even more than nurse practitioners, is they're very objective and they're very data driven. And, so, and these conversations are not, are not that. The conversations are about emotion and sometimes that is um it's difficult to do so we there there was a lot of data that we discussed in this training that I, that I'm personally looking forward to sharing with our our NPs but also our physicians where um where when these serious illness conversations were incorporated into palliative care programs inpatient or or outpatient the the data is just stunning on the improvement and outcomes. So I'm personally excited to be able to share that data with our with our physicians um, because they think on that plane. Um, but but otherwise, just just having the tools, um, the serious illness conversation guide itself. And so what I'm looking at in front of me now is just a laminated uh, a laminated sheet that has on one side the flow of the conversation and on one side the patient tested language. And just what a wonderful tool this is. A provider can have this with them. They can write on it in a, in a marker if they would like, but it just provides structure for this conversation. And another thing that um, that was very striking to me in the training is that, and in conversations I've had with many of our newer providers, they say to me, how, how can I have this conversation, Trent, and, and not take an hour or, or two because we, you know, we are – productivity is important to us in, in our business as well. And it was interesting that we, we watched a video with one of the physicians who's really a pioneer in this serious illness conversation. And we watched her have what I thought was just a phenomenal conversation with a patient and, and it took 12 minutes. And so it showed me, and then by extension, I hope to show our providers that that conversation, especially if you have a relationship with that patient, it, it, can, it doesn't have to necessarily take a, a, a 
prolonged visit or a long time if we follow the guide and ask those questions in that way and elicit the responses it really can be done in, in a manageable time and get such meaningful information now melissa can this be done in multiple visits is this really a multiple conversation kind of thing or is this just a one time it should be it should be held often and um, and reoccurring all throughout their chronic disease, especially in the later stages as things start to progress quickly. You probably need to have more conversations, you know, especially if, if the patient and family goals are unrealistic, then these conversations will need to take place more frequently. Absolutely. Yeah. Because uh, yeah, I mean, really. I, yeah, go I, ahead. Point. I think it was great that you were talking about the time because I think that's one reason that providers don't enter into these conversations is they do take some time and and unfortunately providers just don't have a lot of time but so I'm so glad you said these conversations don't have to be an hour you know they can be ideally you know 16 minutes or more so at least you can get reimbursed for those visits you can use the ACP code 99497 and get paid from their insurance for your time. Absolutely. And and my little bit of experience with hospice as well is whenever I was meeting with a family that, you know, had just been referred to hospice, a lot of times they can't process a ton of information at once anyways. They're they're kind of reeling. This is a lot of times this is bad news. And so it takes time to process that. So I think the smaller chunks is better anyways. I agree. I agree. Yeah. Definitely have to read the situation. And, you know, I love the serious illness conversation focuses on um, asking permission. You know, yeah. is it okay if I share, you know, my thoughts on your prognosis? Or is it okay if I share my thoughts on where we are now? And it gives the patient and family a sense of control. Melissa, that is such a great point. It, I'm so glad you mentioned that. It's It really fosters a partnership between the provider and the patient and family. And what I love about this tool and just the conversation is um, the way it's structured is it, it just pulls this or it encourages the person to share the information and so i love that you mentioned it you ask permission so um it's you know ask is that okay i'd like to talk about this or that is that okay and then i really love after you have really what i think is maybe one of the most difficult parts of it is where you're really talking about the prognosis one of the things we talked about in in the um in the training was when you share that um that prognosis so Melissa mentioned earlier, it could be, you know, I, I think you're, um, I want to share my understanding of where things are with your illness. And then it could be that I believe there, we're talking about uh, days to weeks or weeks to months. After that, we had a big focus on stopping and just take a breath, allow the patient to process what you've said, and then just give them time to, to feel that and then allow them to speak. So I love that part of this too. As providers, especially if we're uncomfortable, we may want to just rush through, um, not even thinking ab about it just because it's a difficult conversation. But I love the, the point of the training was after sharing that, that um, you know, something that's tough to hear, that we just take a, take a pause and, uh, and breathe and let the person experience that. And then when we explore their goals, because remember, the serious illness conversation isn't about treatments. It isn't about... Um, 
medications or anything like that. It's about their goals. And so some of the questions that that um, we learn to ask patients are, you know, what what are your most important goals or what are your biggest fears and worries about the future? Um, what gives you strengths? What abilities are so critically important to your life that you just can't live without? And then um, one of the ones that I, I think is so valuable is uh, it's called trade-offs. And it's really like how much are you willing to go through um, for the possibility of gaining more time. And those questions, and, and finally, how, how much does your family know about this? Those few questions can help the provider gain so much insight into what makes that patient tick, what's important to them. And often what, you, what we may think is important to them really isn't. So asking the question is just vitally important. Absolutely. Um, Melissa, how do you deal with the discomfort when you're having these conversations with, with families and patients? I tell them often up front, you know, this, this is a difficult conversation. This is very hard to hear. I am in this with you, you know, like, or I'll tell them, let, let's just stop and take a breath. Or, you know, if they are tearful, I will reach over, you know, pre-COVID and give them a hug and, and just let them know it's okay if you want to stop this conversation or if you want to keep going, we can keep going. And I try to to make it as comfortable for them and and just honest and open and real. I try to just get rid of all of the um, provider lingo. I just try and use simple, basic words and talk to the patient and family as if I were talking to my own grandmother or grandfather. Yeah. And Jamie, I think just to piggyback on that, uh, there's a phrase that I've used in, in training and other things that I've done for years. And I, when we talk about um, the comfort for providers, and it's a quote, and that is uh, repetition is the mother of all skill. And could, to be quite honest, I just think doing it, just just throwing your hat in there and, uh, and doing it, um, it just provides that repetition and then and then skill is built. And what why this is difficult, is for providers, I think, for people to have this conversation is it's uh, the patient is vulnerable, but honestly, the, the provider is is kind of vulnerable too, um, in asking these questions. And you know, oh my goodness, what is my response going to be when the patient tells me X, Y, or Z? And so I just think that you know, just like I said, repetition is the mother of all skill. Just just being willing to do it. That's and, right. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. Absolutely. How much, and I know, I know you personally, Melissa, um, so this is easy for me to know, know about you, but how big is compassion when you're dealing with this? I think compassion is huge. I, you know, I think when you, um, you just turn off your cell phone, take off your lab coat and, and sh just give that patient and family 20 minutes of undivided attention and, and listening, right? We mm. should not be doing most of the talking during these conversations, you know, 50% of more of the conversation should be driven by the patient and the family. And, and once I show them that you'll, you're, you'll just be surprised how much they open up and share with you. Yeah. You know, it is a tough conversation, but how rewarding is it when you can really lead that person down this path that, you know, this journey that they're on, which is difficult, but how rewarding is it when you can have a successful conversation with them? 
It's such a blessing, Jamie. You know, I think I already mentioned this, but uh, time after time, these patients will just say thank you. Thank you for being honest with me. Thank you for, you know, telling me what to expect. Thank you for helping me talk to my family. I've been wanting to tell my family, I, you know, I, I feel like I don't want to keep going with treatment, but I'm afraid they're going to be mad at me if I don't. Mm. And there's such a, a connection between the patient and the family and the relief that they feel finally being able to ask these hard questions that they've been too afraid to ask otherwise. Yeah. And th this question's for both of you, you know, how important is it to get to people earlier than later? So really getting them into palliative care first and how much easier is it when they're already experiencing and, and, you know, going through palliative care to transition into hospice care when need be? Well, I think and from my point of view as a hospice nurse and then in, in, in training and educating providers, I mean, I, I think earlier is better. I think, um, you know, when you when you talk about having the serious illness conversation and patients who through the trajectory of their illness um, may move from palliative to hospice. I just think that the earlier we can identify that life limiting illness or that serious illness and can begin to have the conversation with the patients, we can get them emotionally, uh, spiritually, and their caregivers on this on this um, same path, or at least this path of understanding of where they're at. I think and always have believed that knowledge is power. And so when we educate and we can early, you know, get patients on that uh, in the mindset or expose them to, let's say, palliative care earlier, we can give them great information and from a point of compassion and empathy, as Melissa talked about, so that we can partner with them. And to me, it's all about partnering with them and their goals of care and what's best for them. And and just um, we can sort of shepherd them through like and Melissa does such a masterful job at this, as do many of our providers, shepherd them through their illness and we're, we're offering them the right service at the right time. So every patient that we, that we manage at SC Health Schools isn't appropriate for hospice. Every patient that we manage, you know, some patients may be appropriate for hospice, but they're not emotionally ready. And so I think that's when, it, uh, you know, palliative care is just such a wonderful opportunity. And it just gives the patient and their family uh, more exposure to these conversations, to a trusted provider, be that their primary care or palliative care provider, having these conversations and sort of shepherding them through their illness and, and, and always keeping the patient at the center of everything we do. Absolutely. I completely agree. Yeah, earlier conversations about goals and priorities are associated with reduced suffering, better coping, higher satisfaction, and less non-beneficial care. Right. Guys, thanks so much for this. Um, I think this is just such an important conversation for providers to hear and to, to get more comfortable with. I know it's uncomfortable sometimes, but man, when you can break through that discomfort, you can really kind of, man, you really help a person. You really help a patient get to those goals that they have you know that they want to continue to have um so guys thanks for all you do we really appreciate it anytime thanks for having us jamie just a couple of announcements every single month on the first monday of the month we have an event called the community leadership assembly 
you are invited, especially if you're an assisted living administrator or skilled facility administrator and a social worker. You can earn up to three CEU credits at this, this event. You'll hear from a couple different speakers and we're going to provide lunch for only $10. You don't want to miss it. So make sure you come to 1626 on Main in Columbia, South Carolina. You won't re Also, if you'd be so kind to write a review for the LTC University podcast, give us a five-star rating. We would really appreciate it. We'd love for you to check us out on social media. You can go find us at LTC University on much. We appreciate you. Thanks for listening. Let's continue to learn together. Have a great day.